Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Physionic Podcast. My name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I'm a PhD student in molecular medicine, and today's topic is going to be a relatively involved one. I'm going to be discussing specifically why, well, I'm going to be discussing how much of an impact obesity or being overweight has on your risk of uh, having severe complications from COVID-19 or the virus SARS-CoV-2. I'm also going to discuss some potential mechanisms as to why that might be the case as to why overweight and obese individuals tend to have a higher risk. And uh, you may definitely want to stick around for, for exactly how much of a higher risk because it is pretty surprising. And then I will also briefly touch on why some fit people, some really, really fit, like you're talking like marathoners, triathletes, uh, bodybuilders that are uh, suffering some really ridiculous amounts like you may have seen uh people post these these kind of isolated stories of he was really fit or she was incredibly uh, athletic and they struggled with COVID 19 and they just escaped and they barely survived or they died or you know whatever whatever the, the the article might be talking about so i'm gonna be covering all of that in this podcast episode so uh, without further ado, let me jump right into the first kind of area of this topic, which is obesity. So there was a, there was a French study that tried to compare uh, retrospectively, so kind of looking back, uh, and wanted to know if you were to categorize how critical certain situations were for COVID-19, so the sympt- symptoms that people were experiencing, could you stratify that based off of BMI? So body mass index, which is an indication of uh, if a person is normal weight, overweight, obese, severely obese, or even morbidly obese. And while I completely understand if you're relatively educated on the topic, you might be rolling your eyes because I'm saying BMI, um, I completely understand. I'm probably going to say it many more times in the future, but I understand that BMI isn't a perfect measure uh, by any means. But again, for the general population, I think BMI is usually a a good indication aside from the the kind of interspersed exceptions to the BMI uh, standard of, of measurement. But so let's let's put that aside for a second. Let's just assume that for the most part, BMI is going to be a relatively decent standard for the general population. So what they ended up finding was that uh, they they looked at the number of people or the percentage of people that ended up on ventilators. So the in, in implication there, of course, is that they're going to be in a highly critical scenario, that they're kind of on the precipice of potentially dying uh, from their COVID-19 symptoms. So they found that 42% of those individuals, so 42% of uh, normal weight individuals ended up on a ventilator. So that means that a that's a BMI of 25 or under that. Now, of course, that does not take into consideration the low end of that because being underweight, of course, can also be uh, detrimental, but most likely that's not gonna be a huge percentage of that normal weight condition. Uh, so 42% were normal weight, uh, and this is of course not in the same population. So, you know, it's not going to add up to hundred percent, just to be clear, uh, 64% of those who are overweight, uh, ended up 
with the ventilator in this situation. So that's a BMI of 25 to 30. And you can easily like calculate your BMI. Like just, just to be clear, if you, if you just go to a, a website, just type in a BMI calculator, you can figure it out in less than 30 seconds. Um, and because all you need to know is your weight and your height, uh, but in meters for height and also for weight, you're going to want kilograms and then 60% for obese. So obese was a BMI of 30 to 35 and then 82% for severely obese. So we're talking about a BMI over 35 and those individuals don't, well, unless maybe you're taking steroids, like there, there's not going to be much debate on if you are obese, uh, at that level, any, any BMI above 35, uh, even the most muscular of men will not uh, have a BMI of 35. So that is uh, for sure going to be, or relatively for sure, going to be pretty indicative. So you can see there that for normal weight individuals at 42%, there's, there's certainly a lower uh, amount of those individuals that are ending up on a ventilator as opposed to the severely obese individuals that were ending up on a ventilator. Like you're almost guaranteed if you're severely obese and you ended up in the intensive care that you're going to end up uh, on a ventilator. So that was now, of course, you know, there's certainly, I might as well mention this real quick. There's certainly going to be issues with a study like this just because um, they're not controlling for, I mean, just all kinds of different variables. But I think one of the, the chief variables that would not be controlled for is that you don't have a standard practice for when a doctor is going to say, okay, now we need to put this person on a ventilator. So if you look at a hospital, um, and this is a French study, I may have mentioned this, but if I didn't, it's French. Um, so you, you may look at a hospital in Paris and try and compare that to a hospital in Bordeaux and suddenly things are going to change because the doctors in Bordeaux may be a lot more conservative about putting a person on a ventilator as opposed to doctors in Paris may be more uh, liberal, may be more uh, accepting of using a uh, ventilator for, for individuals uh, at, at the same level of uh, needing of care. Uh, so if they have certain blood parameters or if they have certain medical parameters, you know, one hospital may, may still keep them off the ventilator while another hospital will put them on a ventilator. So that, that can certainly be a huge confounding variable for a study like this. So it's something to mention just because, uh, as usual, I, I try to bring up, you know, a few other talking points and a few things for people to consider, uh, as a whole. So, but anyway, I mean, regardless, this gives us a little bit of information on kind of how things are stratifying. So it gives us some information, some data on the idea that if you are obese, then you're going to have a much harder time dealing with this virus. That's essentially what I'm saying. Now, then I, I looked at a study. I shouldn't say a study. It was a review and a non-statistical review. So it was just kind of going through they, these authors, these researchers had gone through a series of different studies and then what they did was just kind of talk about the results of many, many studies and wanted to come to, you know, a few different hypotheses as to why this might be the case and uh, they, they had a little bit more data. So uh, on the data front, they mentioned that 
uh, there was a seven times greater probability of ending up in intensive care if you are obese compared to normal weight. So that's huge. I mean, that's a, that's a massive jump. Um, so being obese certainly has some dramatic negative effects on uh, the ability to overcome this virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2. So that's kind of the data front on all this. And um, there's definitely more data out there, but I think overall, I think even the CDC has mentioned that uh, being overweight or being obese uh, does cause, is a risk factor that uh, plays into the diagnosis and kind of how to deal with uh, SARS-CoV-2. So um, just something to keep in mind. I mean, if you haven't been infected or haven't been exposed to, to this virus, it may be a good idea. I mean, it's always a good idea, right, to, to try and lose weight just for general health. But of course, I mean, in this situation, uh, it's, it's a little more, it's well, not a little, it's a lot more poignant um, that you want to keep yourself as healthy as possible. And weight loss, I've talked about this so many times, weight loss is such a huge, huge driver of overall better health uh, if you are overweight. That's a big stipulation there as well. So, and that's who we're talking about in this situation. So, I mean, what were some of these hypotheses? And I'm actually going to go through several that they talk about in this review. And then I'm actually going to talk about one that I think may be playing a role as well, based off of the mechanism of SARS-CoV-2. I've mentioned this before, but SARS-CoV-2 binds to, to the ACE2 receptor. And I'll get into that mechanism uh, at, at the end or near, near to the end of this podcast. But I uh, that's that's more related to my interpretation of what may be going wrong with with these individuals and just in general not necessarily just people who are obese so according to this review they they offer a few different hypotheses as to why this ended up happening why obese individuals are suffering so much and so one of them is due to metabolic dysfunction in the immune system that's driven by typically diabetes and obesity kind of uh, go together, at least type 2 diabetes. Um, so those usually go together. And you can imagine that with diabetes, you're going to have a lot of pathophysiology, meaning that your physiology isn't going to be functioning as it's supposed to. The cells of different organ systems aren't going to be functioning as well as they should be. A prime example of that is like the pancreas, right, can't, uh, is, is constantly pumping out insulin, trying to control your blood sugar levels. So that's an example kind of generally of the pathophysiology, but what would that exactly mean in terms of metabolic dysfunction for the immune system? Now, I will admit I haven't actually read a whole lot of studies into this topic yet, just because, uh, well, I'm busy with so many other things uh, at the moment. Um, including my qualifying exam that's that's coming up uh, actually next week. So I have to worry about that and I have to be very muscle focused to uh, get through get through that. But you know once that goes by, hopefully I'll I will have much more time on my hands to actually attack some of these more obscure topics that I haven't had the, the chance to, to discuss. But I will say that a few months ago, I did read a paper specifically on the metabolism change in the immune system. So uh, if I were to discuss that and kind of put that in context here, is uh, there are immune cells called macrophages, which are part of our innate immune system. So they're uh, right now, you and me, uh, if you're listening to this, then, or if you're watching this, then 
you have macrophages that are just kind of floating around in your bloodstream and uh, through your uh, tissues and they are essentially just like security guards you can think of them that way and they're pretty big cells um, but they're security guards and they kind of just slip in and out of different areas of your body just like with spotlights almost just looking for things to, to gobble up and destroy now when they are in a quiescent uh, I shouldn't say quiescent a resting state they tend to look kind of blob-like. I mean, they kind of look a bit circular. You know, they're just casually moving through things. And uh, they tend to, from what I remember from the papers, that they tend to uh, focus on a fat metabolism. So they tend to use more fat to produce the energy that they need to, uh, to survive, to, to live. And then when they encounter something that needs their attention, they need to destroy it or they need to somehow take care of it. Uh, that's when they shift to an activated state. And there is debate, I'm not going to go into it, but there is debate on if there should be a gradation uh, in terms of the activation state. It shouldn't just be resting and activate. It's not like a light switch. It's more of a gradation, but I digress. Um, the point being that there is a shift in metabolism to more glucose-centric, meaning more carbohydrate-centric. And with that shift, you have this uh, highly active cell that suddenly uh, becomes more aggressive and starts to uh, deal with whatever pathogens are around it or whatever issues are around it that it, it perceives as something that it needs to deal with. So you can imagine that if a person has diabetes or if they are obese, then they aren't going to be in a position where their cells are, their cells are constantly bombarded with the wrong signals essentially throughout uh, their, their normal life. And then you throw a virus on top of that, that seems to have this serious impact when it comes to immune function uh, it's you know the the whole immune system becomes really active um, you have all these immune cells that are going to this particular location if for some reason you may have a shift you, you may have difficulty shifting to that activated state or maybe they stay in that activated state or maybe they get into that activated state and then they they fail to produce enough energy for all the different functions that need to occur that can cause some serious issues when it comes to your metabolism and of course the metabolism within that immune system so that's that's a speculation based off of a few studies that I've read on the topic specifically looking at metabolic dysfunction in the immune system and then trying to couple that to uh, diabetes and obesity so then the another hypothesis that this uh, review came from and this is from circulation which is a really big uh, journal they're they're highly reputable journal uh, looking usually looking at heart disease but in this situation they were trying to make sense of obesity and of course obesity is highly linked to uh, heart disease so SARS-CoV-2 may also affect the pancreas directly. Now, if there are ACE2 receptors on the pancreas, and we know that, and I have a podcast on this already, where uh, SARS-CoV-2 has been shown to affect all kinds of different organ systems. I mean, it can affect, obviously, the lungs, um, the intestines, especially the, the large intestine, the colon. Uh, it affects the liver, it affects the nose, it affects uh, the brain, it can affect all kinds of different areas. So it would not at all be far-fetched to think that maybe SARS-CoV-2 can affect uh, the pancreas. And 
uh, like I just explained, if the pancreas is already struggling to, to release insulin, to produce enough insulin to shuttle uh, blood glucose, blood sugar into the cells, then uh, you have this, it's, it's like an insult to injury. Uh, so, or more like injury to insult in this situation, because then the, the virus will then enter those pancreatic cells and uh, start destroying those pancreatic cells, specifically beta cells in this situation. So that, that, that tissue, that organ system that's already struggling to uh, function properly is then bombarded with a virus. And then you can imagine a bunch of immune cells have to flood to that area as well and start destroying a bunch of pancreatic cells. So that's something to consider as well. And then once your pain, I mean, once your pancreas starts going, you, you're in, you're in pretty deep doo-doo <laughs> to, to put it lightly. Um, Okay, so then the other thought that they had was, well, obesity also increases thrombosis, so the blood clot that can be formed. Um, and obesity, of course, I just mentioned with heart disease, increased risk of heart disease, but also has uh, increases in blood pressure, right? You've got more mass on you, you typically have increases in blood pressure. And with that comes blood clots, and blood clots can certainly add to uh, blood pressure, uh, because you start having this closing of the uh, venature, the, the uh, artery side of, of the body as well. So either side, you're having uh, less and less room for blood to, to be able to move through. And sometimes that can end up releasing like chunks of whatever material ends up creating that, that clogging can actually break off and start to move down finer and finer areas of uh, venature, so um, or vasculature, and then that can get stuck somewhere, and that piece will get stuck somewhere in the vasculature, and then it will stop or impede blood flow to the other side. So that leads to well, the death of all cells essentially that are uh, on the other side of that blockage. You can think of it like a dam, right? If you completely close a dam then there's no more water getting to it. So all the fish that are on the other side of the dam, well, they're gonna die because they have no water. Um, and all the people <laughs> that require water from that dam on the other side downstream uh, are also gonna die because they don't, they can't get water. So same, same situation here. So uh, obesity is of course a prothrombotic, meaning pro-blood clot forming uh, issue. And then COVID-19, one of the symptoms is prothrombosis, so an increase in those blood clots being formed. So that's it's just another situation here where you're kind of getting a double whammy. Just like the pancreas, you're getting a double whammy there. Uh, with this, you're getting a double whammy on um, the the ability to deal with clots or the formation of clots in the, in uh, in general. Uh, another thought process that they mention is potentially reduced lung function from weaker muscles. I think that this is probably a little bit weaker of an argument, uh, simply because when you're breathing, you're not using your musculature that much. It's really based on your, your diaphragm. Uh, but if you do any sort of forced exhalation or forced inhalation, then you will be using that musculature. So maybe on the tail end, if a person is really struggling to breathe, like they have pneumonia, you know, as a secondary injury from COVID-19, uh, then that can be an issue because you're trying, you're actively trying to breathe in and breathe out. So you have to actually concentrate and you may not be thinking about it right now, but you know, 
you just kind of go out throughout your day and you're breathing normally. So that's, that's not going to be that much driven by your musculature in the sense that like with exercise, with exercise, um, after a while, you know, if you're really pushing yourself hard, you start, like you stop exercising and you realize like, you're like, <gasps> you're like heaving, right. Trying to, to, to try and pull together enough oxygen, enough air and try to release as much carbon dioxide as you can. So, um, in that situation, the, the musculature is important because it's going to allow for that forced exhalation. So the breathing out of CO2 and the forced inhalation of, uh, oxygen. So I think that's probably more kind of down, like really close to a person, person dying, to be honest. Um, if they're, if their lungs are completely filled or starting to fill up to the point where they feel like they actually have to actively think about, Oh, I need to breathe in now. Oh, I need to breathe out now. And that, that would be incredibly terrifying because uh, you're essentially drowning. But, uh, because of those weaker muscles, because they haven't been used through exercise, through specifically aerobic exercise, you know, cardio, uh, cardiovascular exercise, then they're going to be weaker and therefore they're not going to be able to, uh, pull in as much or, uh, push out as much as they might need. Uh, also, I guess another point I should have mentioned this early, I mean, obesity already just has general higher levels of inflammation. So just having higher levels of inflammation itself, and then you throw a virus on top of that, that's going to of course explode the situation. Um, also the, there is apparently a study. I did not read this study, but based on this review, they mentioned that there is a study and potentially other studies where they've looked at obesity and it actually impairs the adaptive immune response to specifically influenza. So let me break that down real quick. I just, I mentioned the innate immune response when I was talking about macrophages. So macrophages, neutrophils, uh, things of that nature, those kinds of cells, those, those are always essentially present. They're just always around, but, and they, they will trigger activate and then attack whatever pathogen is around. Now, if they sense that they can't deal with a particular uh, issue. It's not really like they're, like they're thinking about it, but just through the whole biology of the situation, if they end up needing more help, then they take a pathogen, destroy it, crumple it up, <laughs> break it apart, and then they present uh, pieces of that pathogen, a pathogen being something that's uh, dangerous or attacking our body. And then with those pieces, it will then activate and I'm kind of, I'm skipping steps, but it will activate, uh, the, the adaptive immune response and the adaptive will then, uh, kind of use that as a clue, as a marker, and then start to try and create antibodies and try and deal with, with this virus in, or this pathogen. But in this case, this virus, uh, with, with much more specificity, but also producing millions and millions more cells to essentially grow the army of your immune system to fight off this virus. So you can imagine that if obesity impairs the adaptive immune system, and this is specific to influenza, so it's not far-fetched to think that it would also impair it against SARS-CoV-2. So in that situation, you know, you, you, you may, it may be apples and oranges, but it could also be apple and like red apple and green apple. So it could be very close. Uh, so in that situation, then obesity 
will have a direct impact on uh, reducing the ability to respond to uh, SARS-CoV-2. So those are some of the thoughts that they had in the circulation review. Uh, now, if you'll indulge me, allow me to get some of my physiology off. Uh, there, there's another thought that I have, uh, wherein we use the mechanism by which the virus functions and we can garner some clues from that. And I do believe that this could be, and I, I would imagine that this has an effect, uh, maybe even the primary reason why people who are obese or have high blood pressure, uh, will suffer specifically from this virus. So the, there is a system that regulates your blood pressure. There are numerous systems, but this is one of the major players called the renin-angiotensin system. This renin-angiotensin system, I'm going to go through it through how your body normally functions, and then I'm going to backtrack and explain how the virus could be affecting the system. Normally, you have the release of a molecule known as angiotensinogen. I'm emphasizing that because it's kind of important when I go into two of the other molecules, which sound very similar. So angiotensinogen is released by the liver. So once that gets released, you have a uh, an enzyme by the name of renin or renin, which is released by the kidneys. And it's kind of cool how these different systems are working together to regulate your blood pressure. So renin will then cut this angiotensinogen to angiotensin. So angiotensin one. Okay. So then angiotensin one is then, uh, bound to another enzyme known as angiotensin converting enzyme. Now, if you've heard me talk about the virus before, please forget what I said just for a minute. I will return back to that. That is, we're not talking about angiotensin converting enzyme two. We're talking about the first one, angiotensin converting enzyme. So then angiotensin converting enzyme, well, just like the, the, the name implies, it converts angiotensin one to angiotensin two. So they, they don't get too creative with it, which is nice. Uh, and then angiotensin two will then eventually lead to this uh, increase in blood pressure. And through this, that's how we regulate kind of the, the, the bottom at a end of our blood pressure. If blood pressure starts to dip, starts to decrease, which is not something you want, you don't want your blood pressure to be zero because if it's zero, you're dead. Uh, so, uh, but you also don't want it to be too high. Well, on the bottom end, this is that system that's going to control that. So it's going to release angiotensin two, and therefore then you have uh, increases in blood pressure through a mechanism of vasoconstriction, my apologies, vasoconstriction. So uh, think of like a hose. So your, your, your vasculature, your veins, specifically your arteries, to be, to be frank, um, your arteries have muscle around them that allows them to constrict. And when they constrict, because you have a certain amount of volume in your, uh, blood system, in, in your va vasculature, in those arteries, then that blood volume, once it's being constricted across the body, that means that your blood pressure 
increases because it's a closed system. It's the same thing that if you were to uh, do it to a hose. I always use this as an example. If you were to close the end of a hose and then turn on the water, uh, and then you were to, and then let's say you have a set amount of water and you you then stop the the water coming in. So you've got this closed system. The the hose is pretty packed, um, filled with water, and then you were to squeeze in on the hose. If you were to measure the pressure within that hose, that pressure would increase, and maybe the the cap that you that you left at the uh, on the end of the hose may pop off because of that pressure. But you know that's just speculation. But regardless, you would see an increase in in pressure in water pressure. Well, for us. We have a ton of hoses going through our system, and that leads to an increase in our blood pressure as opposed to our water pressure. Same thing. So that's how it normally should work. Now let me go back to the virus, SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-2 binds the ACE2 receptor. And now we know that, that it not only binds the ACE2 receptor uh, on just the lungs, but it also affects the liver and it affects all these different other uh, areas and even the heart. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this now is ACE2, remember it's angiotensin converting enzyme. The problem is that now there is a new way of looking at the renin, 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 angiotensin system. So, because this ACE2 exists, what it does is it degrades angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2 to other forms of angiotensin. I'm not going to give you the names. It doesn't matter. And typically what ACE2 would do, when you get this degradation of angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2, then you end up with greater vaso dilation, so the opposite of vasoconstriction. So if ACE1 were to have its way, you would see increases in vasoconstriction, so greater blood pressure. However, if you have ACE2 there, then you have some of that that's kind of buffered by going through ACE2 and then be degraded so that you don't end up using it for ACE1, and therefore you have greater vasodilation. So the vasodilation being the opening of those vessels, and therefore a lowering of blood pressure. Now, why am I mentioning this? Well, because SARS-CoV-2 binds the ACE2 receptor, it is possible that it's not out of the realm of possibility that if it binds enough of it, that it could actually have a physiological effect that, uh, and this is keep in mind, this is all speculation. I'm just going off of my knowledge of physiology and pathophysiology. And I'm kind of proposing my own hypothesis, just like the circulation review. So if the SARS-CoV-2 binds the ACE2 receptor and kind of takes it out of, out of, uh, out of, the uh, function out of the physiology, the normal physiology, so you have less ACE2 around because it's being bound by so much SARS-CoV-2, then that means that you have less of that being, less of the angiotensin 1 and 2 that's being degraded to end up increasing vasodilation. Therefore, you can have more of it available for it to go through the ACE1 uh, 
path or the canonical pathway. And therefore, you would see increases in vasoconstriction. Now, that would further increase blood pressure. So you can imagine now, try and put that together with people who are obese and people who have high blood pressure, have hypertension. Now imagine you have another driver of hypertension. Suddenly, you're getting like a triple whammy there of... I keep saying whammy. I don't know why. It's not like a thing for me. But regardless, you have this this triple hit of increases in blood pressure. And of course, that's going to have a profound impact on your heart. And that's going to have a profound impact on your cardiovascular system. So that could be another contributor, maybe even a major contributor to uh, how SARS-CoV-2 is having a direct impact on obese individuals uh, specifically, or really just people that have uh, hypertension if that's uh, hereditary as well. Uh, and then the final thing that I wanted to briefly discuss is why fit people might be dying, because I just talked about how obese people are in, in far more danger as a result of, uh, of being uh, severely overweight. Um, fit people dying. Now, Here's the thing. I, I keep seeing this, and this is probably just I'm in my own bubble, so I, I see this because I'm around people that are, you know, they're fit, uh, typically. Not that everybody I know is fit, but like, you know, a lot of people that, that I know are fit. Um, so they're, they're posting things about fit people dying. It's like, oh, this is scary, right? And it is, no doubt. Um, but there needs to be context applied to that. And I think the best way to apply context to that is that uh, <laughs> we see these isolated articles of like, oh, you know, he was, like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, oh, he was super fit and then he ended up dying from COVID-19 or she was super athletic and uh, she b barely escaped. Like she was on a ventilator for 21 days and then uh, finally recovered from, from COVID-19. And I think one of the issues that I have with that is that certainly that's true. I'm not by any means saying that it's not true. Uh, but the problem is that it's an isolated article. So you're, if you're looking at statistics of, of people in general, um, like perfect example is like what I've just been talking about. You look at the obesity statistics and we're talking about tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And then people are like jumping on a single article or maybe even three articles or four articles. The fact that there's an article written on it should give you some like pause to think, oh, well, I mean, maybe they're, they're pointing this out because it's rare and they, they, they don't have any other examples, but that aside, uh, it's still just an article. It's about one person. So uh, that could be for any number of reasons. Uh, now, that said, because this person was fit, uh, that probably helped them out with this whole like recovery process, even though it may have been devastating for them. It probably still helped them out overall because of all the reasons that we, you know, we just talked about for uh, obese individuals, why it's so detrimental for obese individuals, while fit individuals would be, uh, in many manners of speaking, kind of the opposite of that, having benefits in, you know, blood pressure regulation, body fatness, all that, you know, musculature, all that stuff, their, their lungs function better, like all that stuff, right? It's all going to be better for a person who's generally fit. So, focusing in on these particular stories and saying, oh, well, this also affects fit people. 
Yeah, it does. No doubt. I mean, again, I'm not invalidating the fact that these people went through this, this horrific, uh, infection and that they barely survived or, you know, maybe they didn't survive. Uh, but it still isn't, it, it shouldn't be put on par with the thousands and thousands of, you know, individual people that, uh, have that really have risk factors. So to point out just a few isolated cases of fit people isn't much of an argument. Um, it's, it's, it's not like a fit person isn't in a better position. They are. Uh, that's just, that's, I mean, that's just true really across the board for any disease, right? If you are fit, uh, then if you've taken care of your body, then in whatever capacity you're able, uh, then your body's just going to be better uh, in a better position. Now, a, a great example of this, this kind of phenomenon that I'm talking about is, uh, illustrated in my video where I say science is wrong. Um, and where you can't look at a single data point and say that that is, that science is wrong. Uh, you have to still consider that data point. It is part of the data. However, the clustering of data, the majority of the data is actually applicable to uh, saying that fit people are in a better position. And that is absolutely true. So um, I just wanted to address that as well, because I, I really have seen quite a few people post like, oh, no, we, we're, we're just as susceptible. No, that's not at all true. Uh, you are not just as susceptible, but I will say, I mean, for certain fit individuals, uh, being fit, no matter what is going to help, but, uh, you can still have a genetic background that may, and we're still figuring this out. You know, science is still figuring this out. Doctors are still figuring this out, um, to figure out why some people just have, especially with certain, uh, race backgrounds, it must be maybe some sort of genetic profile. I don't know. Like, I don't know the, the, the reason why it's certainly all speculation at this point, but, um, certain individuals just really suffer badly from this infection. And then a lot of people just like it's, they, some people don't even know they have it, you know, it's just, they just brush it off and some people have really mild symptoms. And then you have some people that are kind of in the middle. So I do feel like there's a lot of heredity, a lot of, uh, genetic traits that play a factor, but taking care of yourself, regardless of your genetic background, taking care of yourself, uh, absolutely will absolutely unequivocally will help against, uh, this, this virus and really just any infection, but certainly, uh, against this virus. So keep that in mind. Okay. That's what I've got for you. Hopefully, uh, you found this informative and, uh, I hope to have the pleasure of speaking with you in the next one. Have a good one guys. See ya.